All right, so uh, good morning again. Um, like to just begin with some preliminary notes about uh, the topic, who John Cashin is, and then why we're doing this, why we can do this confidently. First, um, the topic of the vices. It seems like, you know, just as a, as a note about all the things that we're going to be covering, um, these are very extreme, uh, just how, and you'll notice how all of the vices exist in your heart in some way. And the reason why do this mission and why we point this out is because Christ has conquered sin and death. And because of that, we can look at the vices, frankly, and be able to overcome them. You know, the world doesn't talk about sin because the world doesn't have any confidence that it can overcome sin. So at this time, um, yeah, we'll just go right into what John Cashin has to say. St. John Cashin, uh, his history, he's an early desert father. He existed around, like, he lived in the three, four hundreds. And he's writing these institutes, these conferences, to other desert monks who have left their uh, livelihood for the sake of the gospel to live in solitude and uh, to live in prayer. So this is who he's talking to when he's talking about purging out these vices. Now, because they, just because they are monks and they're striving for perfection doesn't mean that these vices don't exist in us in the same way, or we express them in just because we express them in a different way doesn't mean that they still don't exist in us. So the novel thing that John Cashin does is first, like normally we look at the seven deadly sins, and it's important to note that these are not mortal sins. What the vices are, or the deadly sins, are the cause of all the other sins. From these vices, uh, the vices are a certain disposition or an inclination that we have towards sin, a sin is an actual act that we do that offends God. That's important to note. A vice is a disposition that we have towards sin. A sin is an actual act that we have against God. Um, a habitual disposition is a vice. Now, what John Cashin does is that he takes the vices, and he doesn't call them seven. For him, there are eight. Uh, normally, the seven vices, and, and this is just a great acronym to remember them, um, wasp leg, wrath, avarice, sloth, lust, pride, envy, gluttony. Wasp leg. I use that all the time. Like if I'm in a pinch and I see a priest and I want to go to confession and I want to confess my sins, usually I'm confessing them uh, in terms of the vices rather than the commandments, you know, confessing them as the vice as the source of sin. Um, what John Cashin does is that he removes envy, which is sadness at another's good, and he puts in dejection, which is just kind of a general sadness, and he splits up pride into pride and vainglory. So for John Cashin, there are eight vices. Now, with those vices, he takes them and he categorizes them into the three temptations of, that Jesus suffers because the devil reveals his plans for the human heart whenever he tries to tempt Jesus. And so the first temptation in the Gospel of Luke is to turn these stones into bread, to turn these stones into bread, which you see in your six-page packet. 
And the thing about turning these stones into bread is that what he's doing is that he's tempting, um, he's tempting Jesus into sins of the flesh. And so sins of the flesh are two, gluttony and lust. Gluttony and lust go together. So if I am going to conquer gluttony, then I'm going to conquer lust. But gluttony is the head of those sorts of sins. Even though lust might be a more serious sin, gluttony is the sin that goes before lust. And so if we conquer gluttony, it's that much easier to conquer lust. And so gluttony, let's talk about it. St. John Cashin says that gluttony and lust are defined as pampering the appetites of the flesh, that sometimes it excites the mind when at rest and even drags it against its will to consent to its desire. So because they entice the flesh and the mind, both gluttony and lust, they need a double remedy, an effort of the mind as well as an effort of bodily self-denial. It cannot be only bodily self-denial, and it cannot only be an effort of the mind. It takes both to overcome the sins of the flesh, gluttony and lust. So he says that the importance and why gluttony is the first vice that we need to conquer. Because we need to look at it this way. If, let's say the devil was successful in getting Jesus to turn those stones into bread, the devil would have stopped right there. He would have won. So often, if the devil gets us to fall to gluttony and lust, he no longer bothers us. He already wins. And so we have to then go about it, about conquering the sins kind of backwards, so to speak, pride last, gluttony and first, because this is the way that the devil tempts Jesus. If he gets to fall in the small things, then he won't even try with the bigger things. And so gluttony is the first vice that we need to conquer if we're seeking gospel perfection. It has to be the first, because if we're not able to beat a weaker enemy in just our own appetites, then we're never going to be able to beat a stronger enemy when it comes to anger, when it comes to lust, when it comes to greed, or when it comes to pride. It's a lot easier to say no to a cupcake than it is to say no to like all the kingdoms of the world, right? Um, and so gluttony has got to be the first vice that we conquer. The other thing is that gluttony, because it makes us sluggish, it makes it impossible for one who has a full belly, John Cashin says, to make trial of the combat of the inner man. And he's not worthy to be tried in harder battles who can be overcome in a small battle. And so how does he define gluttony? And this might be a little bit of surprise. Gluttony is not simply overeating. He says that the nature of gluttony is threefold. First, there is that gluttony which forces us to anticipate the proper hour for a meal. So that has to do with our mind. If we're always thinking about like, well, when's lunch? Or when's dinner? Or when's breakfast? That's a manifestation of gluttony because I'm now living to eat, not eating to live. And so um, it drags our mind down to earthly things rather than lifts them up into contemplation of heavenly things. So that's the first thing that gluttony, the way in which gluttony can manifest itself. And that we're always looking forward to the next meal. The next is that it affects the body because we delight in stuffing the stomach and gorging all kinds of food. Again, it literally weighs us down into pursuing greater things. You get, you know, like it's after like Thanksgiving, you know, you eat the turkey, you get the itis. You know, you got to sit on the couch for a little while. Like that, if, if we're constantly living like that, 
then it makes it hard to deny ourselves, and especially to deny ourselves for love of another, to grow in charity. The third thing that gluttony can manifest itself, third way in which gluttony can manifest itself, is that we take pleasure in more refined and delicate feasting, that we only eat things that are pleasurable to the palate. Again, we live to eat, not eat to live. This is the way that like, we rest. We rest in earthly things by the way in which they taste rather than divine things in meditation on the scriptures or in contemplation um, or, or spending time in adoration with the Eucharist. And so what gluttony does to the soul, why it's harmful. By eating off schedule, what we do is that we spring forth dislike of our state of life. We use food as an escape, right? You notice this, like some people, like they'll, they'll cope with ice cream or something like that. And so they use food as their escape, and because they use food as their escape, they now cultivate a certain dislike of their own life because they're escaping from the crosses of their own life. We also, uh, by gorging ourselves, uh, spring luxury forth. So a little bit of greed uh, can, can come forth from that. Um, eating delicacies hinders our self-denial, and a full stomach gives birth to idleness. What's interesting about this is that we think of Sodom and Gomorrah and how great their sin was, and certainly it was great, and it was a sexual sin. But what first came, whenever God is talking to Abram about Sodom and Gomorrah, what he's saying is that they have too much food and too much wine. It was because of their gluttony that they cultivated this lifestyle of idleness so that they could have these more sexual sins. That gluttony normalized um, a culture of uh, self-indulgence so that the, the uh, road was paved for sins of lust. And so what happens if we overcome gluttony? If we overcome gluttony, but we do it only with bodily fasting without the mind. Let's say we overcome gluttony similar to a man who would want to overcome gluttony simply because he wants to lose weight, because he wants to be fit. And that is his only reason for overcoming gluttony. What John Cashin does is that he compares that man to um, the man in Matthew 12, 43-45, who has a demon in the home, he cleans the home, but because he cleans the home and puts nothing else in it, seven more demons come. And so the seven other vices for John Cashin come in and fill that space. Because now we are proud that we're no longer gluttonous. We can have lust because, hey, we're not delighting in food, so i got to delight in something else. And the other sins come in as well. So fasting alone, John Cashin says, will make us more wicked than we were before if we struggled with gluttony. Fasting alone cannot be the answer. And so the remedy is that we cannot possibly scorn the gratification of food presented to us. Practically, this is what we have to do. Fasting, vigils, reading, frequent sorrow for sins, and yearning toward perfection. Again, fasting enough is not alone. We need to infuse uh, our minds with the love of heavenly things. Uh, what he says practically is... Whenever uh, there's food presented to us, um, we have to not scorn it. Like, you know, like somebody, somebody cooks pizza rolls for dinner, you know, and that's not good enough, whatever. Just like eat the pizza rolls, you know. 
um, that we're not denying we're not uh, denying food because it's just simply not good enough for us. Um, we should also wait till a proper time for breaking the fast. So not just eating when I want, but eating at scheduled times. Um, and that way it's not something that our mind anticipates. We not give way to gorging and we be contented with any sort of food. And what temperance looks like for John Cashin is this. The man will not in any case allow himself to be overcome by delicacies, nor take anything to eat or drink before the fast is over, and the proper hour for refreshment has come outside mealtimes. Nor when the meal is over will he allow himself to take a morsel, however small, and likewise that he will observe the canonical time and measure of sleep. He also sleeps well enough. That's what temperance looks like. So then the second sin that is related to it, but is stronger and more intense, is lust. Is lust. And so lust comes upon us very suddenly and directly. Unlike gluttony, where we face it head on by fasting by prayer, lust is so strong that we actually want to flee the scene whenever we are tempted with lust. That we don't want to fight lust, but run away from it. We don't want to get stuck in the head game of whether we should commit the sin of lust or not, but rather seek a distraction. So what lust for John Cashin is caused by is gluttony and an excess of pleasure. So again, look at how after Jesus' victory over gluttony, the devil did not tempt him to lust because Jesus was able to say no to the more subtle vice of gluttony, he certainly was going to be able to say no to the more clear vice of lust. Because he overcame gluttony, he was able to overcome lust. Now, the second, on the other side of that, John Cashin says that lust can be caused by too much fasting. If I fast too much, then I'm looking for immoderate relaxation. You know, we're just worn out, we're just stressed. And in that way, lust can be caused. So again, that's why our fasting needs to be coupled with prayer. As Jesus says to the disciples at times, this demon can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. The third cause for John Cashin is more psychological, just a wounded and sickly heart. And in that way, what we need to do is heal our hearts by having a higher love than uh, what lust presents to us. And so the effects of lust are two, we're stripped of the memory of scripture and the fear of God. Throughout salvation history, memory is very important. This is why God says, remember, remember the works of the Lord, and why after Moses crosses the Red Sea, they have to celebrate the Passover every year. It has to be in the memory of God's people what God has done. But then lust is so powerful that it overtakes and clouds the imagination. So that whenever we are in the throes of lust, we forget what God has done, or we remember what God has done, but we don't value it as good. And for that reason, uh, lust strips the memory of Scripture and the fear of God, because lust distorts what is the greatest natural good, sex, to uh, take precedence over this, what is supernaturally good, God himself. The second effect of lust after it strips the memory of scripture and fear of God, is that it accompanies, it gives us uncleanness and shame more than the other sins, more than greed. A man can be greedy and feel no shame. 
you need to be greedy his whole life and feel no shame. Because the world can value that greed. Even if the world values a man's lustful habits, lust um, will always cause a deeper shame and uncleanness because lust distorts the very way in which I give myself in the most perfect way, in which a man gives himself to create life. And so once that's distorted, there's a lot more shame that comes from it as well because the sin of lust touches on the core of man's identity and how he gives himself in love to another human being. And because of that, we can feel strangers to holiness more so than the other sins whenever we fall to lust. And so the remedy to lust is this, is that we have a change of scene, but as well noticing that because both, yeah, because both gluttony and lust are completed by external objects, objects outside of myself, that I need to change, I need to have a change of scene as well as mortification and self-denial. Other, the other vices, the other six vices, can be changed by a decision of the mind. But with gluttony and lust, I actually need to remove myself physically from the place of temptation. And so he gives five things that overcome lust. A contrite spirit, perseverance in prayer, meditation on the scriptures, which is reclaiming our imagination, which lust takes from us. Manual labor to restrain and recall the wanderings of the fickle heart. And true humility. Recall how whenever David does not go out to war, he is tempted toward lust with Bathsheba. He no longer has a task. He no longer has manual labor. And because of that, his fickle heart can wander over into lust with Bathsheba. And so correction for John Cashin from lust mainly comes from perfecting the heart, since the sin comes from the depths of man. And the way in which we perfect the heart is not just through bodily fasting and self-denial or fleeing the scene of temptation, but it's by having a higher love. Lust can be so persistent in the heart of man who doesn't have a higher love for the gospel, doesn't have a higher love for the Eucharist. So uh, Bishop Fulton Sheen says that the only real escape from the demands of the flesh is to find something more than the flesh to love. The only real escape from the demands of the flesh is to find something more than the flesh to love. And so we need to have a deeper love for the Holy Eucharist to overcome this sin ultimately. Um, certain vices, John Cash notes, can be cured by human commerce and daily living. So if I'm struggling with sloth, then I need to get out. You know, If I'm struggling with anger, then I need to forgive and, and confront the person who makes me angry. But for chastity, he says that it takes solitude. Now, for us, solitude now has become a moment of chastity because of prevalence of pornography. But what he's talking about is a solitude from, you know, external, uh, uh, I guess, stimuli, right? So that would mean solitude from images as well for us. And so whenever we abstain from drunkenness and also idleness so as to increase strength and concentration, we're able to overcome lust. Um, what does full chastity look like, this, the virtue of chastity? Is that no lewd image comes to us, whether awake or asleep, that excites us. Um, that is a manifestation of an interior fault. 
So even like this is like the full flourishing virtue of chastity that even whenever I sleep, that there's no, um, you know, there's no nocturnal dreams that are sexualized or anything like that. What is going to happen with the man who is fully chaste is that his, even his imagination is captivated uh, by love of God. The Holy Spirit in chastity lives in our hearts, and that is the greatest reward in all happiness. And we have integrity of heart, that we don't have a duplicitous heart. So that's what chastity looks like. And this is why chastity, why lust is so shameful, because it, it removes the Holy Spirit um, from our hearts, and we no longer uh, live as a temple of the Holy Spirit. So with both of these sins, what is at use is the appetite for earthly pleasure. And so the remedy for both gluttony, gluttony and lust is desire for grace and spiritual delight. Desire for the Eucharist as spiritual food and divine intimacy. And now what John Cashin does is that he takes those three groups of sins and he provides with them a certain evangelical counsel. And so, you know, the evangelical counsels are poverty, chastity, and obedience. But the evangelical counsel that he gives to conquering gluttony and lust is the counsel of chastity. So chastity is the way in which we, um, which we grow. So then, once the devil cannot tempt Jesus to fall to the sins of the flesh, what does he do? He moves to him to try to tempt him to the sins of greed. And so the sins of the flesh are sins of the appetite. Man kind of exists in three ways. He has an appetite, he has a will, and he has an intellect. He then moves man to try to have sins of the will. And so this is the, the sins that are with the, the family of greed. Because what the devil does is that he says, I will give you the kingdom, all the kingdoms of the world. So greed and anger are coupled together, and dejection and acedia are coupled together. And we'll get to those in a little bit. But greed and anger are specifically related because they spring up in the same way. As in most instances, they find the reason for their being stirred in something outside of us. Gluttony and lust come from desires that are natural to man that are distorted. Greed and anger come from desires that are not natural to man, but then once man desires those things, then they're a part of him. For often men who are still rather weak complain that they have fallen into these sins through irritation and the instigation of others and are plunged headlong by the provocation of other people. So again, anger and greed do not necessarily come from ourselves. They come from the outside, and then we can take them over ourselves. Um, so greed, John Cashin defines very simply, is um, the love of money. And he says that, after Jesus' victory over gluttony, the devil did not venture to tempt Jesus to fornication, but passed on to greed, which he knew to be the root of all evils. And when again vanquished in this, he did not, atter, did not dare attack him with any of those sins which follow, as he knew full well, spring from this as a root and source. So he passed on to pride. So greed is the cause of anger, dejection, and acedia in some way. So there are three kinds of greed. There's one in which we are hindered from being stripped of our goods and property, which I identify so deeply with a certain good or property that it causes me sadness when I'm stripped of it. Um, excessive eagerness towards possession, that I always want to gain new things. 
and that I covet and procure what I have not previously possessed. That is the third kind of greed. And so what is the cause of greed? It's caused by the state of a corrupt and sluggish mind, as well as an unsatisfactory renunciation for the gospel and a lukewarm love for God at its foundation. And a lukewarm love for God at its foundation. That whenever we make our, um, our desire to live for the gospel, that if we've made it with a lukewarm heart, then greed will still exist within our hearts. The good news about greed is that it's actually easy to guard against because it's not natural. Uh, man, you know, like, you don't really see animals, like, become hoarders. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not really an animal thing. But for man, when greed is full-blown, he can become a hoarder. It's just something that's, that's totally not natural. Um, but still, I mean, it's, it's common to every man. Uh, so it's not born with us, but um, once it is allowed to gain entrance into the heart, it is the more dangerous to everyone and with greater difficulty cast out. For it, be, for it becomes itself a root of all evils and give, gives rise to multiplicity of enticements to sin. And so the effects of greed are this. Eventually, the greedy person will not care to retain a shadow of humility, charity, and obedience, and is displeased with everything, and murmurs and groans over every work. And, now having cast off all reverence, he then is discontented with his daily food and usual clothing, and he announces that he will not put up with it any longer. He declares that God is not only in the monastery, and that his salvation is not confined just to the monastery, where if he does not take himself off pretty quickly from it, he deeply laments that he will soon die. So a greedy person is much more likely to leave like a bad family life. You know, like if his, if his marriage is struggling or something like that, he's like, look, I have options. I have these things. And look, my sanctification isn't really tied to this place or not tied to these people. So let me just go and and do what I want. This is what a greedy person sounds like. What greed does is that it makes holiness seem optional. We have found us God to serve and provide, and his name is Mammon. And so he has money to provide for his wanderings, the monk does, and with this assistance of money, he has fitted himself, as it were, with wings to go wherever he likes. Greed does three things. Three things does it does do. It persuades us to hoard, though we never had anything of our own when we lived in the world, to resume and once more desire those things which in the early days of our conversion, of the, uh, which in our early days of conversion, we gave up. And it never allows us to arrive at the perfection of the gospel. So greed, more than anything, makes our hearts lukewarm. We start off, perhaps, living the faith, maybe after a retreat or after a conversion experience, very zealously. And then greed is this kind of slow burn to where it's, it's not that I, I necessarily hate the gospel, but I just have an indifference toward it because I'm too comfortable. Um, and so those things that we gave up, now we're like, oh, well, well, we'll keep them. So no one can serve both God and mammon. A man cannot fight the Lord's battle with a double heart. For the number of sins which attack us is far larger 
than that of the virtues which fight for us. No man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The number of sin which attacks us is far larger than of the virtues we have that fight for us. And so for this reason, God, man cannot serve both God and mammon. So what is the remedy to greed? That we not only guard against the possession of money, but we also expel from our hearts the desire for money. Money, we know, exists only as a means to an end. See, like our bank accounts going up, all, we're not looking at a good. We're looking at something that acquires a good. But greed blinds us so much that we see money itself as a good. Money itself can do nothing, right? Like money itself is just paper. But money acquires a certain good, and so we have to keep that in mind. But it distorts the soul whenever we, um, it deforms the soul whenever we value money as a good. Whenever we have the love of money, that is what greed is. Rather than using money as just simply uh, something that God, God wants us to use for uh, advancing his will. And so he says, let us be aware of acquiring that wealth which we never formerly possessed and avoid taking back any of that wealth which we once cast, which we once cast away from us. And then what he also says, so that's a way of preventing greed, but a way of overcoming it is that we meditate on our last end. Let us beware that the day of the Lord has come upon us as a thief in the night and find our conscience defiled even by a single penny. For this would make void all the fruits of our renunciation of the world and cause that which was said to the rich man in the gospel to be directed towards us also by the voice of the Lord. As the gospel says, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast prepared? And so what prevents greed is humility and patience. Humility teaches us not to trouble anyone else. Patience teaches us to endure with magnanimity wrongs suffered to us. Now we move on to anger. Anger being related to greed, there are three kinds. The anger that rages within us, the anger that breaks out, that rages outside of us, and the anger which is resentment. So anger. The, what the effects of anger do is that anger blinds our vision, as does greed, but in a different way. We cannot acquire right judgment. We cannot gain insight. We cannot give counsel. And we cannot endure disturbances. What anger does is that it hinders our objectivity. We're not able to see the Lord clearly. And so anger boils over and blinds the eyes of our soul from, from seeing the sun of righteousness. And so what repressed anger does is that as it is nursed in our heart, it excludes the splendor of the radiance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cannot dwell within a resentful heart. And because he cannot dwell within a resentful heart, what John Cashin says is that if we are angry, we have to postpone prayer to be reconciled with our brother. Prayer will not do anything. It might even nurse that anger unless we forgive and reconcile our brother. That's why Jesus says, we heard in the gospel uh, yesterday, that if you have any grievance with your brother, leave your gift at the altar, reconcile with your brother, and then offer your gift. Anger uh, casts out the Holy Spirit and does not leave us objective. And so God cannot exist in the angry heart. 
the remedy for anger is this, is that knowing that the peace of our heart does not lie in anyone or anything else's perfection, but only by our own long-suffering. The peace of our heart does not lie in anyone or anything else's perfection, but only by our long-suffering. Both anger and greed have a misconception that peace exists in the outside world around me, that I can control the outside world to cultivate something that exists within me, peace. And that is not true. If peace is to exist within me, then it must be caused by something that's within me. And so what it has to be caused by is by my own patience, by my own ability to have long-suffering. And so his, um, because of that, his remedy to anger is not to remove myself from the person who makes me angry. It's actually to suffer long, to practice patience around those who anger us, not simply flee from their presence. St. Jerome was like famous for his vice was anger. And he's basically a hermit. But being a hermit did not make him all of a sudden not angry. All it did is that, that anger manifests like towards himself. And so what needs to happen is that we practice patience around those who provoke anger towards us. The other thing that we need to do is make the resolution to decide that we ought never to be angry for good or bad reasons because we will lose the light of discernment, good counsel, and uprightness if we are darkened by anger. We have to value the light of discernment, good counsel, and uprightness more so than a sense of justice that's around me. And next, realizing that we cannot house the Holy Spirit nor be able to pray if we are angry, realizing that all of our efforts towards salvation will be in vain. The next two sins that have to do, uh, that are mothered by greed, are dejection and acedia. So dejection and acedia are kind of paired together in their own way outside of greed and anger because they arise without any external provocation. Greed and anger have to do with something that's external. Dejection and acedia arise from something that uh, comes internal. And so what he says is that they harass particularly hermits, more so than those who live in the world. Uh, but I'd like to point out that probably more so than ever, we kind of live like hermits, but um, in the sense that we spend a lot of time alone, even though we're, what we're, we think that we're spending time with other people that were on our phones, but we're spending more and more time alone. And so dejection and a CD are definitely sins of our time. So dejection. There are two kinds of dejection. And dejection is just kind of a general sadness that prevents me from carrying out the precepts of the gospel. It springs up whenever anger has died down or is the result of some loss that we have. It's incurred of some purpose which has been hindered and interfered with. And it come, what dejection comes from is an unreasonable anxiety of mind or despair. And so sometimes without any apparent reason, we find ourselves suddenly depressed with so great a gloom that we cannot receive with ordinary civility the visits of those who are near and dear to us. We're doing well, you know, like we're doing our love and penance as well, and then one day we wake up and we're just sad, and we're just, we just have no energy for living out our Lenten penances. This is what dejection looks like. 
And so the sudden rise is a symptom that dejection has already taken residence in the soul. It's not as if dejection, whenever that, that sad day, that, that sadness just comes upon us, it's not that dejection is just kind of sprang up. Dejection was there the whole time. But he compares it to a worm-eaten beam that looks good from a distance. But whenever something is hung upon that wooden beam, it crashes. So it is with dejection. Whenever the burden of charity, he says, is called forth from us, we find our soul useless. So we're doing our Olympus. Everything feels fine. Everything's great. Everything's great. And then one new challenge comes upon us, and like, it seems like the whole foundation crashes. Dejection has taken residence within our soul. And so how does dejection happen? It, attack, it happens through separate attacks made at random and by haphazard and casual changes. For as the moth injures a garment and a worm injures wood, so does dejection injure the heart of man. That slowly and without us noticing. What are the effects of dejection? It keeps us back at all times from all insight and divine contemplation. It utterly ruins and depresses the mind that has fallen away from its complete state of purity. It does not allow the soul to say its prayers with its usual gladness of heart. It does not permit it to rely on the comfort of reading the sacred writings. Nor does it suffer to be quiet and gentle with the brethren. It makes the soul impatient and rough in all the duties of work and devotion. It makes everything feel burdensome. It eventually crushes and overwhelms the soul with despair to the point of losing salvation. And again, it is similar to a house consumed by termites. It cannot bear any difficulty, nor is it capable of worship. And so dejection comes upon us kind of mysteriously, but what is it caused by? Through a long course of carelessness in regards to amending our faults and the task of prayer. Dejection is caused by long carelessness of not examining ourselves. Whenever we're not constantly examining ourselves and our own motives, then those kind of worms fall in, the, those termites come in, and then slowly, slowly make our soul decay, where whenever new, something new is called upon us, we are not able to perform that task in charity. And so the remedy is practicing patience in the company of others that strengthens the heart. Notice this, like um, last week, went to dinner with, uh, to lunch with several students. And it just seemed like at some point, it was very hard to bear each other's presence. Like people just had to, had to pick up the phone, you know, had to do it. It was too much to bear someone else's presence and to feel available to them. But John Cashin says, and this is not a new thing, because what John Cashin says is that whenever the hermit takes a visitor into his cell, that if he wants to overcome dejection, he just remains very attentive to him. And that that charity that he has to exercise towards that visitor strengthens his heart. It strengthens his heart. And so what we have to do is just get off the phone around others and just pay attention to our neighbor to help strengthen the heart. Um, the other thing that we do is that we constantly amend our own faults. That if we examine our conscience daily or even just throughout the day, then it makes it that much easier to not fall into dejection. Uh, that is how we prevent it. And then we constantly keep our minds filled with hope of the future and contemplation of promised blessings. We are not depressed with present accidents. 
nor are we too elated with present prosperity. That is how we avoid dejection. Um, so then the next sin that accompanies dejection is acedia. Acedia. Now, acedia, not like dejection. Acedia um, is more upfront. Dejection happens without us noticing. We just wake up and realize it happens to us. Acedia attacks us like a bully. And it makes us act in one of two ways. It either sends us to sleep, so just laziness, or it makes us become busybodies that we forsake state of life and flee. Grass is green on the other side. We just want to do things. What acedia is, is that it's um, a hate toward divine things. I have no problem working, I have no problem calling these people, I have no problem doing all this activity, but if you ask me to just sit and pray in the chapel for an hour, no way. That's, that's what acedia does. And so how it works is that it wears us down like a battering ram until the soul learns to sink or into slumber or accustoms itself into busyness and distraction. It more frequently and aggressively attacks the one who flees from it. So if we try to flee from acedia, it even attacks harder. It's not like lust, where we can flee from it and then for a time, and then lust goes away. If we try to flee from acedia, from um, you know avoiding avoiding prayer, it's not like you know we come back and like oh everything's fine. No, it, it makes it worse. It makes it much worse. And. It attacks us until we forget our spiritual purpose and totally engage, engage ourselves in secular business. That's what acedia wants us to do. So the effects of acedia is that it makes us seek out idleness. So just like doing nothing on the phone or, or just doing nothing of making us do busy things that are really of no eternal consequence. Or it makes us think only of food or company. So the remedy, according to St. Paul, is that we attack acedia head-on. And we do that in a few different ways. First, and that we be quiet. We be quiet. The the person who struggles with acedia is the person who struggles with gossip. Because they are disturbed by other rumors, which spring from the wishes and gossip of idle persons. So we have to stay away from gossipers and disorderly people. Uh, That is people who are so concerned with the business of others. Because why are they concerned with the business of others? Because they cannot face their own business. That's why. Gossip is, um, is an effect of acedia. The other thing that we do is that we do our own business. So we don't uh, spend our time curiously wondering of like what's happening in the world. We rather spend our own strength on bettering ourselves. Another thing that we do is that we work with our own hands. No one can be restless or anxious about another's task who applies himself to his own task to the point of contentment. And we also covet no man's good. Acedias makes us covet another man's goods because we are not satisfied with our own work. Finally, the evangelical counsel that accompanies this is poverty. Poverty is what overcomes these four vices that if we live a life of detachment, then we are much more capable of overcoming all four of these vices. Um, And so the practice, the Lenten practice that we do is almsgiving. Almsgiving is the Lenten practice. Uh, The Lenten practice for uh, gluttony and lust is obviously fasting. Well, now that the devil has not tempted Jesus to uh, have all the kingdoms of the world if he bows down and worships him, 
Then the devil moves on to the third temptation, and that is to cast, that Jesus must cast himself down from the parapet of the temple. And so these two sins that accompany this desire to make of oneself a spectacle is vainglory and pride. Vainglory and pride. So let's talk about first about vainglory. Vainglory, uh, the difference between vainglory and pride is that vainglory has to do with um, how we perceive ourselves and flattering and puffing ourselves up with how great that we are. Pride is, pride is not so much concerned with that. Pride is concerned with just simply excluding God and being God in our own lives. That's how John Cashin sees it. So there are two kinds of vainglory. There's uh, carnal vainglory and spiritual vainglory. So carnal vainglory, the person who is uh, prideful and, and, and puffed up and full of himself about his own wealth, his own physical gifts and talents, his own appearance, that's carnal vainglory. Spiritual vainglory, so a man is puffed up about his own holiness, his own perceived holiness, his own spiritual practices, his own knowledge, things of that sort. And so uh, vainglory is like, uh, it's like Shrek, you know, uh, it's, it's like, an, it's got many layers. It's, got, it's like an onion, you know, that's how, that's how vainglory is. It's got a lot of different layers. And how vainglory attacks the soul is interesting. It's different from the other vices. It takes many shapes and is like a chameleon. It changes its previous disguise until it conquers the soul through the appearance of virtue. It's also like, you know, like playing whack-a-mole. So if a person um, is vainglory, like has vainglory in his soul, and then, you know, at one point he's puffed up because he's got all this money in his bank account. And then what does he decide to do for Lent? He decides to give his money. And so what does he do? Now he's puffed up because now he's given his money. So now he's, he's um, puffed up about his own poverty. And so vainglory exists um, in that way. And it attacks the soul, because of that, it attacks the soul on all sides. It attacks the soul in our dress, in our manner, in our walk, in our voice, in our work, in the way that we do uh, fasting, in the way that we pray, when we, when we read, the way that we think, the way in which we remain silent, the way in which we obey, and even our humility and our patience. And because of that, because it attacks the soul on all sides and so subtlety, he compares it to a, like, a, a boat is going on the ocean, and there's all these waves, and there's a rock that is underneath the waves. And then once that boat hits the rock, it ruins the hull, and it destroys the ship when the sailor least expects it. And so what happens is, and how we can also fall into dejection with vainglory, is that we're progressing in virtue, and then we suddenly realize, I was doing Lent out of vanity. You know, I was doing it to be puffed up about myself, not in humble obedience to God. And so if vainglory cannot drag a man down because he's flattered by others, then vainglory will drag a man down by his own humility. Oh, because I'm not flattered by others. Or because I am flattered by others and I don't take any of it, look at me. You know, that man can be uh, suffer from vainglory even if he has no one else to validate that vainglory. Um, so the other vices are easier to overcome after time, but the thing about vainglory is that throughout our lives, we attack it. Like, an older man is not going to struggle with lust in the same way 
that a younger man will struggle with lust. But an older man will struggle with vainglory in the same intensity as a younger man will. Because it will attack a man in any which way. Um, it, the tricky thing about vainglory as well is that it exists like a traitor in an army. It exists alongside the other virtues. Like greed very much sticks out against poverty. Gluttony very much sticks out against fasting. But vainglory, we really don't know because of how mysterious the human heart is, how our fasting or our prayers or our virtue, whether this happens out of humility or vanity. And so we need to let the weeds and the wheat grow up, like Jesus says in the parable, to discern what is out of humility and what, what is happening out of vainglory. So vainglory is tricky because it exists alongside the other virtues. But it is important to note that John Cashin still tells us that we need to conquer vainglory last. So sometimes we can say, oh, well, like, I know I, know I should tithe, or I know I should pray. But I feel like if I'm praying just where I'm at right now, I would only be doing it out of vanity. I would only be doing it out of pride. That's, that's, what, that's not a good reason. Like, we should cultivate the habits of tithing. We should cultivate the habits of fasting. We should cultivate the habits of prayer. And then, after having those habits, then we can address to see if they're vainglory. He says that vainglory is useful in that way. Because it is better to fall to vain, to struggle with vainglory than it is to fall into lust. So if a man says, like, like say a man is committed, uh, I mean, is tempted to lust, you know, and he says, well, I'm not going to do that because I'm better than that. That's a little bit of vainglory, you know. It's not for, for pleasing the Lord, but it would be better to struggle with vainglory to know our own weakness than it is to struggle with lust. So vainglory can be useful for a time, but it still needs to be addressed. And so how do we address vainglory? What are the remedies? With, because vainglory and pride are the sins of Satan himself. They're what, like, Satan is spirit, right? So he doesn't own anything, you know, so to speak. So, like, greed isn't necessarily a thing. Obviously, lust and gluttony, those are bodily things. Satan is is spirit, right? He, he doesn't have those sins, so to speak, but, but he fell through vainglory and pride. And so because of that, it's important, the way that which we overcome vainglory and pride is through prayer and through certain considerations in prayer. So we consider that the Lord scatters the bones of those who please men, that we're just scattered, our integrity is scattered. Um, that we never allow ourselves to do anything at the suggestion of vanity and for the sake of obtaining glory, that when we have begun a thing well, we maintain it with the same care for fear that vainglory can make the fruits of our labor worthless. We avoid the things that are of little use to our vocation, that they may not lead us to boasting, so we do necessary things. And we not only lose the, we, sh we consider that we not only lose the fruits of our labors, but also offend God by vainglory by doing for the favor of men what we ought to have done for his sake, preferring the praise of the world to the praise of the Lord. Consider how Jesus says how the Pharisees have already earned their reward. And then lastly, uh, pride. So there are two kinds of pride, as there, are with vain, as there is with vainglory. 
carnal pride in regards to men, and spiritual pride, which is worse than carnal pride, in regards to God. And this attacks those who have made progress in good qualities. Uh, The dangers of spiritual pride. John Cashin says, Lastly, the devil tempted Jesus to pride, by which he knew that those who are perfect and have overcome all other sins can be affected. And owing to which he remembered that he himself and his character of Lucifer, and many others too, had fallen from their heavenly state, without temptation from any of the preceding passions. No other fault is more destructive of virtues and robs man of holiness, which is a pestilent disease, that attacks the whole of man. Every other fault, every other vice is kind of satisfied with its own purview. So gluttony destroys temperance, lust stains purity, anger destroys patience, so that if we're in bondage to one of these vices, we can have virtues in other areas. But because pride confuses vice and virtue together, one day we can wake up and find that there's nothing pure in our soul, and so it can ruin the whole of man. It contaminates virtue to the point that I no longer have virtue or desire to try and practice it. And it's also important to note that in the scriptures, God is only opposed to the proud. He is not opposed to the gluttoners, to the gluttonous, to the fornicators, or to the covetous. But God is opposed to the proud. And so what causes carnal pride? Carnal pride, again, having to do with our own appearance, our own abilities, our own money, um, whatever that might be that's held in worldly esteem. Carnal pride enters into the lukewarm heart. It enters those who never lead our state of worldly haughtiness. And so, again, avoiding lukewarmness. The dangers of carnal pride is that it does not allow us to be gentle and kindly. Um, It does not allow us to be on a level with our brothers. It does not allow us to be permitted to be stripped of our worldly goods. And it can result in falling from the faith. I think in your packet for reflection, there are signs of carnal pride which are very, um, are very convicting. The remedy to pride, though, the remedy to carnal pride, is that our foundation must be the fear of God and poverty which is necessary for humility, and that we should regard ourselves as inferior to everyone so that we may bear their faults. We constantly bear in mind the passion of our Lord and the saints and how far behind we are in their humility, merits, and sufferings. We bear in mind the shortness and smallness of our life. And we, in regards to God, consider that we cannot possibly perform anything without his help. In regards to spiritual pride, because it is the sin of Satan, it requires no assistance from the body. Pride is the sin of the mind. Thus, what we need to do is change the way that which we think. We need to believe that God has done all things well in our lives. We need to be convicted that we cannot live apart from God. Consider the humility by which we were saved, the humiliation of God himself, on the cross, and we need to be humbled by how far pride has made us fall, that God allows all virtues to fail by pride so that we may know how offensive it is to him because this sin properly offends him, it is, offends him, properly offends him, it is rebellion. So the evangelical counsel that John Cashin says is practice is obedience and the Lenten practice that we do is prayer because we need to convert the way in which we think. You'll also find uh, the other page, just the single page, um, a reflection on a dominant and predominant fault. I think it was going to make for good reflection 
in this holy half hour, which we only have time for, and then through Lent, is finding um, we all have a predominant fault, which is a more serious fault that we tend towards of those eight vices, and a dominant fault, which, although may not be more serious, is more common. What do I more commonly fall to? And so I just, uh, I think for meditation um, during this time of prayer, to consider um, what is that dominant and predominant fault, and then going through that other page just to kind of see what are the effects of that so that we can come to terms with that and see that in ourselves, and what are the remedies to that so that we can overcome them. So at this time, uh, we will begin to expose the sacrament, and so worship the Lord uh, in the Eucharist. Thank you.